Good evening and welcome to Navarra Live. It's Ash Wednesday. Um, it's not actually Ash Wednesday, but I'm Ash Sarka and I'm your host tonight and I'll be joined by Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, how are you doing? I'm good, darling. How are you? I'm very well. I just feel a bit sad that you don't get a whole day in the Christian calendar named after you. What's that about? Um, coming up tonight, the Saudi government are set to execute a citizen for tweets critical of the state. But free speech warrior Elon Musk is notably absent from the conversation. And a bizarre video from the French government about Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And Jordan Peterson, he continues to hit ever more strange levels of online discourse. Stay tuned for all of that. But first, we'll be discussing the ULES camera smashers and potentially their most high-profile ally yet. Make sure to let us know your thoughts. Do you think the vigilantes who are sabotaging ULES cameras will get the same treatment as the likes of Just Stop Oil? You can, as always, get in touch using the Super Chats on YouTube or tweet at us using the hashtag Navara Live. Let's go to our first story. After the expansion of the ultra-low emission zone to all of Greater London, protests took place outside of Downing Street last night. People turned up to fight the, quote, toxic air lie and for some reason to stick democracy in a coffin. Anti-ULES protesters have also taken other forms of direct action. The so-called Blade Runners are a group of activists who've been vandalising ULES cameras across the capital. The night before the expansion, they carried out a, quote, night of the long knives using extendable secateurs, angle grinders and water pistols to disable dozens of enforcement cameras. I mean, guys you do realise that the people who carried out the original Night of the Long Knives weren't the goodies. Anyway, questionable Nazi references aside, that's the kind of direct action the Tories are usually quick to jump on. But for some reason, not when it comes to ULEs in the home counties. Senior Tory Ian Duncan Smith is the MP for Chingford and Woodford Green in North East London. He told the Daily Mail this. A lot of people in my constituency have been cementing up the cameras or putting plastic bags over them. I am happy for them to do it because they are facing an imposition that no one wants and they have been lied to about it. The actions you are seeing show how angry people are at what is being imposed on them. Sadiq Khan has gerrymandered all the information. People have had enough. Perhaps it's just a little bit awkward that Duncan Smith's message came just a day after Home Secretary Suella Braverman released this video. I've announced that following a call from myself and the policing minister, forces across England and Wales have made a commitment to pursue any available evidence where there is a reasonable chance it could lead them to catching a perpetrator and solving a crime. I expect police forces to take full advantage of footage made available by CCTV, vehicle dash cams, phones and smart doorbells to help identify and catch suspects and deliver justice for victims of any crime. Ugh, bad timing. For Duncan Smith, the actions of the Blade Runners are justified because people are angry about what's being imposed on them. Which is funny, because he didn't seem to feel the same way about another group of citizens protesting against having something imposed on them. Back in November last year, Ian Duncan Smith was pretty keen to increase the severity of punishments handed out to Just Stop Oil protesters. They don't want climate change caused by carbon emissions imposed on them. 
Or, to be fair, the rest of us. That's a slightly more pressing issue than not being allowed to drive a pre-2005 car in the capital. But somehow, Just Stop Oil's actions are completely intolerable, while destroying ULES enforcement equipment is fine. Now, it's very unusual for right-wing politicians like Duncan Smith to come straight out and encourage law-breaking. After all, law and order is their bag. That's why some have taken a slightly, but only very slightly, more subtle approach. Here's Nigel Farage on TikTok. And what's going on is the cameras are being vandalised. In Bromley, 90% of the cameras have been smashed, nicked, taken away. Now, I would never encourage a campaign of civil disobedience. You mustn't go out and vandalise things, although I have to say it's quite funny. Oh, he's being remarkably subtle there. I would never encourage it, but I have to admit it's quite funny while gurning at the camera. We get the subtext. It's pretty much been made text. Um, Dahlia, it's pretty interesting how some acts of civil disobedience are characterized as the actions of an extreme minority fringe, and others are characterized as the actions of ordinary people who are pushed to the edge. How is that distinction drawn? Yeah, I mean, I think for most regular, just ordinary people, that distinction is, I mean, it's quite natural for that distinction to be drawn on the basis of whether or not you agree with what the pro- what the protesters are protesting about, right? That's pretty natural. That's kind of human. It's just human beings, right? Human beings are endless hypocrites. And that's just how we are. And it's fine. We reserve a right to be that. The problem here is when you're not talking about just regular people watching their TV and making decisions and value judgments on what they see other people doing, but you're talking about a state, a state apparatus that has given itself a huge, and people who represent that state, who have given themselves a huge remit in terms of legislation um, to crack down on people's civil liberties and ability to protest, you know, including through the use of civil disobedience. Uh, you know, even where that is an institutional right, you know, a right that is institutionalized and is widely considered to be part of the democratic fabric of a modern society. I'm thinking here about strikes. I'm thinking about the fact that this government has done everything in its power to try and curb and minimize people's ability to strike, which of course is a form of disruptive action, but is disruptive action that is come a like a um, approach to following a democratic process. So the problem is when you have a government that's given itself very discretionary power, very wide ranging powers that it can apply just in a discretionary way. And they are adopting a policy, which obviously they're not here because Suella Braverman um, has come out and said, you know, has indicated that she will she has the same approach to just Love oil as she does to these anti us campaigners but the broader environment is such that some protesters are treated differently to others and the legislative framework that allows for that kind of discretionary you know often adjudicated by police on the spot kinds of um law and order that's where the problem really lies and that's what really concerns me but i would also say that there are actually some quite important differences even if we look at this objectively between the anti-ulez protesters and the just stop oil protesters the most obvious one being that one group's analysis is based in reality and the others is based in 
conspiracy theories. And, you know, you can criticize the ULES policy on a number of legitimate grounds. You know, you can say it's not right for, uh, you know, the government to make regular people pay for climate action. That There's a lot more that we can do before we start getting to the point where we're individualizing the cost of climate action onto individual drivers. Sure. From what I understand, these anti-ULES protesters, that's not really their bag. Their bag is more about this kind of quite conspiratorial way of thinking where they see things like ULES, things like 15-minute cities or kind of anti-congestion legislation as being part of a broader conspiracy to, you know, create a one-world order or to create a dictatorship. Uh, And it kind of like brings in, it kind of locks into as well the anti-pandemic and um, anti-COVID, anti-lockdown, anti-vax sort of milieu of politics that has also emerged. That is kind of more concerning because it isn't actually grounded in any evidence and it's kind of fostering quite a concerning political climate, particularly in certain parts of the country that is being sort of fomented as well by online uh, online activity, online misinformation. Whereas with Just Stop Oil, there is no doubt that we are on the brink of a climate crisis, that climate, the climate crisis is man-made and that there are certain policies, including refraining from drilling for oil, that are widely understood to be essential for ensuring that we can mitigate against the worst impacts of climate breakdown. So if we're going to look at it in terms of actual objective value judgment, there is a pretty big difference between what Just Up Oil and ULES and the anti-ULES protesters are doing. But when it comes to the way that the state engages with these questions, particularly when they've given themselves a wide range of discretionary powers, uh, what that ends up looking like is action and civil disobedience that threatens the status quo, that threatens power in, in the case of Just Up Oil, fossil fuel, the fossil fuel industry and their accomplices in government. That is considered to be something that needs to be policed and curtailed and no punishment is great enough. But when it comes to no matter how irrational, no matter how unrooted in reality it is, when it comes to groups that are, you know, in the same kind of political, that have intersecting political interests, in this case, going against the mayor of London, um, they are more than willing to, to give that a pass and to not be honest about the fact that a lot of the conjecture that's coming from these anti-ULES protesters is just not grounded in reality. I mean, I think that's a really important point that you make there in terms of what's politically convenient at any given time. I mean, the major difference between just stop oil protesters and anti-ULES protesters, other than obviously I agree with one set of protesters and not the other, is that Just Stop Oil have been turned into tabloid hate figures, whereas ULES is being turned into a wedge issue because the Tories think that that's going to help them hold on to outer London seats and other marginals across the country because ULES, they think, is an unpopular policy amongst the particular cohort of voters that they're going for. So it doesn't matter that you've got forms of civil disobedience which involve some degree of property damage and that what you're saying is that the police and the courts need even tougher powers for one set of protesters. It doesn't doesn't matter that you're ostensibly talking about the same form of protest. Um, One 
is politically convenient because it's a useful wedge issue. And the other is politically convenient because you want to turn these people into hate figures. Um, I also note that a lot of this sort of gung-ho anti-Eulers stuff is only really becoming a massive deal after the Uxbridge by-election, where the Tories managed to hold on to the constituency of Uxbridge, an outer London borough, by fewer than 500 votes, in part because the Tory candidate ran a single-issue campaign about ULES. Let's move on to the next story. So, um, I think we need to be very cautious about any, anything that is anti-meritocratic um, and anything that is... Uh, that, that results in the suppression of, of free speech. That was Twitter, or X, owner and free speech absolutist Elon Musk, hailing the vital importance of meritocracy and free speech. There, Musk was talking about the dangers of the so-called woke mind virus. But to be fair, the woke mind virus doesn't execute anyone for their speech, unlike some of Musk's business associates. A man in Saudi Arabia has been sentenced to death after being accused of tweeting and retweeting criticisms of the state. 54-year-old Mohammed al-Gamdi was arrested by Saudi authorities in June last year. According to Human Rights Watch, he spent more than a year in prison and was given no access to legal counsel until his trial began. In July, he was found guilty of violating Saudi Arabia's counter-terrorism law. The court found him guilty of, quote, describing the king or the crown prince in a way that undermines religion or justice, supporting a terrorist ideology, communication with a terrorist entity, and for publishing false news with the intention of executing a terrorist crime. He was then sentenced to death. Human Rights Watch report this. The public prosecutor sought the maximum penalties for all charges against al-Gamdi. The documents say that the court issued the sentence on the grounds that the crimes targeted the status of the king and the crown prince, and that the magnitude of his actions is amplified by the fact they occurred through a global media platform, necessitating a strict punishment. So just to be clear, al-Gamdi's punishment was more severe because he made his comments on Twitter. According to Human Rights Watch, Al-Gamdi had two anonymous Twitter accounts, one with eight followers and the other with just two. Most of his activity involved retweeting well-known critics of the Saudi government. The organization described his other tweets as, quote, peaceful expression. We don't know exactly what the contents of the offending tweets were, but Human Rights Watch reports this. The charging document cites as evidence several tweets criticising the Saudi royal family and at least one calling for the release of Salman al-Awda, a prominent cleric facing a possible death sentence on various vague charges related to his political statements, associations and positions, and of other prominent imprisoned Islamic scholars. So what does any of this have to do with Elon Musk? Well, the Saudi Kingdom Holding Company is the second largest owner of Twitter after Musk. The Kingdom Holding Company was founded and is majority owned by this man, Prince Al-Walid bin Talal Al-Saud, a member of the country's ruling Saud family. But nearly 17% of Kingdom Holding Company is owned by the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, making the state itself an investor in Twitter. So far, Elon Musk has said nothing publicly about this case, and his silence might be helping Saudi Arabia in a wider crackdown on online dissent. 
The convicted man, Muhammad al-Ghamdi, is the brother of Saeed al-Ghamdi, a well-known Islamic scholar and government critic living in exile in London to escape the Saudi authorities. In response to his brother's sentence, he said this. The specialised criminal court in Riyadh, headed by Awad al-Almari, sentenced my brother Muhammad al-Ghamdi to death following five tweets criticising corruption and human rights violations. And his defence during the investigation of the detained scholars Awad al-Khani, Salman al-Awda, Safar al-Hawali and Ali al-Omari. The court did not accept all the medical records proving his chronic neurological diseases and did not point out his greyness and ill health. Note that the procedures that were followed with him suggest that this false ruling aims to spite me personally after failed attempts by the investigations to return me to the country. I appeal to everyone who has any ability to help free my brother's neck from the rule of injustice and unfair rulings. Al-Ghamdi's sentence is just the latest and most severe in a series of criminal penalties dealt out to Saudi citizens for online criticism of the government. In August last year, a Saudi appeals court increased the prison sentence of a Leeds University doctoral student from 6 to 34 years. Salma al-Shahab was taken into custody when she returned to Saudi Arabia for the summer holidays. That ruling was based solely on her activity on Twitter after she was accused of, quote, assisting those who seek to cause public unrest and destabilize civil and national security by following their Twitter accounts. Her sentence was later reduced on appeal to 27 years. On the same day, a separate court sentenced another woman to 45 years in prison for, quote, using the internet to tear the country's social fabric. Summarizing the situation in Saudi Arabia, Joey Shi of Human Rights Watch said this. Saudi authorities are now resorting to online criticism not only with unfair show trials, but with the threat of capital punishment. It's difficult to see how the Saudi leadership's pledges to become a more rights-respecting society are meaningful when a mere critical tweet can lead to a death sentence. So, Dahlia, what do you reckon? What's the bigger threat to free speech? Is it online wokies or is it the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia? I mean, it's impossible to say, but I do know which one is more of a threat to Musk's precious little ego, which is the thing that's governing this entire platform, essentially. And that is, of course, online wokies who make him feel bad about himself. Um, but basically, there are two things here that I think that really struck me, right? So the first one is the question of global platforms like Twitter that have become essentially almost like public utilities in terms of how central they are to our communications infrastructure, to how we communicate with one another, how institutions, including state institutions, communicate with their electorates uh, or, you know, the people that they govern. So this incredibly essential public global utility um, and how it interacts with local law, particularly in a context of growing authoritarianism. Um, around the world. You know, this has always been kind of a struggle with global platforms because they are incredibly powerful in so many ways. But then there's that question of, well, what do they, how do they deal with differences in local law, particularly when those local laws are so clearly objectionable? You know, this is a problem with 
things like when governments send requests for certain tweets to be taken down or for certain tweets to be deprioritized in the algorithm or for certain terms and certain kinds of images to be, uh, you know, screened out of Twitter in a particular region. It can also mean Twitter being willing or not willing to hand over data to state authorities if requested. So this is a kind of ongoing problem. Of course, that is deeply problematized and made into even more of an issue when you have a state that is actually a direct investor in a platform and where the implications of that are not necessarily transparently known because obviously with these platforms, very little is transparent. And so who knows what the process was, what what happened behind the scenes that this particular individual who doesn't seem to be a particularly prominent person or someone who wields a lot of power, but someone who came to the attention via Twitter um, to the Saudi government. So that is obviously a very important question that I think this raises. The other question, which you kind of um, gestured towards, is this recurring and endless question of free speech, uh, both on social media platforms, but also more generally. And it's stories like this that make me realize that the term free speech, the rubric of free speech, is really not a useful one for addressing the thing that we're actually talking about. Because let's remember, free speech as a kind of civil right is in, has its roots in this idea of protection from state persecution, which obviously this is a clear example of. You know, there's this idea that you should be able to express speech um, without the state coming after you. That was the initial premise of free speech as a civil right. But what's happened is we've moved away from that, even though that is still a really central issue, and it's a central issue both in case of something like this in Saudi Arabia, but it's also a central issue across the world where, you know, we can look at in the US, um, the forbidding of certain books being taught in schools, the forbidding, of, the forbidding of education around trans healthcare, you know, these are all where the state has actually mandated that it is forbidden or that it is curtailed. You have these problems of state curtailment of free speech, but that's never in the discussion. That is never actually what we are talking about when we're talking about free speech. What's happened is the free speech kind of sense of free speech as an inherent civil right has bled into this weird area of very, very wealthy, famous white men basically wanting to be able to say and do whatever they want without people without people saying anything back, without any kind of being protected from social consequence or being protected from someone saying something that might make them feel bad about themselves or being protected from embarrassment. And that is the free speech that Elon Musk is interested in. Elon Musk is interested in being able to say and do things that are offensive, that are, you know, get garner a lot of criticism and to essentially be shielded from that criticism or shielded from that kind of public critique or engagement, even though he's on a public social media platform where that's kind of the name of the game. And so it really shows me kind of that what I, what I always sensed about this, which was when we're talking about free speech in these contexts, 
we're not talking about the actual right of free speech that, of course, must be defended at all costs, which is protection from state persecution. We're talking about the very fragile egos and feelings of a very small number of people who want to be able to continue to say and hold position, to say things and hold positions that groups of people, women, people of color, trans people, queer people, that they're used to not having to hear from, suddenly having tools through which, including social media, tools that they can use to speak back to these kinds of positions. And they're not used to having that. And they want they don't want to have to reckon with that. And so that is where we're seeing free speech being mobilized, which is a shame, because there are actually concrete ways, particularly in the context of social media, where free speech, as in the persecution of people for expressing speech by states and by powerful institutions, is actually a very real problem. Um, and social media brings out a new dynamic to that problem that didn't exist when free speech was first being thought about and sort of cultivated as this idea as of an inherent right or a civil right. That is a real conversation that needs to be had. That's not the conversation Elon Musk is interested in having because he's more likely to actually be have similar overlapping interests to those powerful institutions, including nation states than he is with people who are actually being persecuted by that. I mean, I think one of the really key things to look at here is ownership of communications and media infrastructure. There's a reason why the Saudis wanted to buy out so much of Twitter, because you're controlling effectively a really key part of communications infrastructure. So you're able to do things like uh, pursue really draconian convictions of people people for being critical of your state while at the same time being insulated from too much criticism or being able to play an outsized role in influencing the policies of this particular piece of communications infrastructure because you co-own it. Um, and I think that there's a certain irony in that private ownership of the press, of media, of communications infrastructure was traditionally seen as a defense against the incursions of state power. But what we're seeing in this case is that private ownership of communications and media hasn't been a bulwark against state media because when a sufficiently wealthy state comes along and goes, hey, I'd really like to buy this, your private owners of Twitter or The Independent or The Evening Standard are like, yeah, we'd really like your money. That sounds great. Um, so this kind of neat division between private ownership and state incursion, it dissolves on contact, contact with reality. Let's move on to the next story. During the early days of Boris Johnson's government, it felt like you couldn't move for government reports denying the existence of institutional racism. Most notorious of these was the March 2021 Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. It concluded that individuals and families were to blame for enduring inequalities rather than structural racism. And, bizarrely, it featured a foreword from Tony Sewell encouraging us to look on the bright side of slavery. The outgoing director of the Runnymede Trust, the UK's leading race equality think tank, took aim at the government's persistent denial of institutional racism. In an interview with The Guardian, Halima Begum said this, every time they denied institutional racism, some other event would happen that showed the realities for people of colour living in Britain. 
If it wasn't the Casey review, it was the cricket or the experience of black England footballers at the Euros. Every time there's a denial of racism, it surfaces out again. She continued, I would say the more they tried to deny the existence of racism, the more they showed themselves to be not committed to race and, in fact, not committed to many people in this country because the rest of the country could see the disparities. I think it created a bit of a credibility issue for the government and those that would deny institutional racism. And here's where I'd probably disagree with Halima Begum, only to say that Boris Johnson's government didn't just deny the existence of institutional racism. It wasn't just a matter of lacking credibility on the issue. They tacitly encouraged racism as well. Who can forget, for instance, Priti Patel's defence of racist football fans booing players who take the knee? The Runnymede Trust was amongst several organisations which criticised the government's 2021 report on racial disparities, and this landed them in hot water with the Tories, who immediately lodged a complaint with the Charity Commission, claiming that the Runnymede Trust had been improperly critical of the government. The Charity Commission concluded that there was no breach on the part of Runnymede, Begum also told The Guardian that she was receiving death threats at the time, and described the attacks on Runnymede Trust as a damning reality. She added this. The idea that a charity set up to speak out against racism wasn't allowed to speak out against racism, that's the tragedy. The political system is so broken that somehow everything feels distorted and you cannot stand for what's right according to your charitable objectives. And I think this quite neatly captures the two prongs of the Conservatives' culture war strategy. First, you use whatever tools are legally available to you to cast dispersions over individuals and organisations involved in the work of social justice. And it doesn't matter whether your complaints are successful or not. You tie them up in investigations and reviews and disproportionate scrutiny. And that means that bandwidth is taken up dealing with bullshit rather than doing the work. And the second prong comes from having created a news story that plays out as crusading government versus woke blob. Obviously, you don't have to explicitly encourage death threats or abuse, but then again, you don't have to. The hounds are set in motion purely because this is playing out in the media as a formulaic culture wars story. So someone like Halima Begum doesn't get seen as an anti-racist policy wonk and expert. She's instead an evil race baiter. Um, Dahlia, this was making me wonder, have the Conservatives distanced themselves from culture war under Rishi Sunak? No, and I don't think that there was any expectation really from anyone serious that they would. Let's not forget Rishi Sunak came in hot with this stuff. Uh, this was meant to be the guy that was going to you know, bring the grown-ups back into the room. He wasn't a Boris Johnson type sort of buffoonish character. He was serious. He, you know, wore his suit, his, he combed his hair. He comes from the finance sector, which for some reason people think lends credibility, uh, that he was, you know, a serious economics guy. That was a purely a branding exercise. That was purely a figment of the imagination of the media. Let's not forget that this so-called serious grown-up in the room began his bid for leadership, not talking about the economic aftermath of the pandemic, not talking about the fact that our healthcare systems were on their knees because of three years of a, of a virus that we weren't prepared to deal with because there was already no slack in the system, all of these very serious issues. 
Rishi Sunak began his campaign for leader on what? Gender neutral bathrooms, because that's apparently the bread and butter of the politics of the Conservative Party. And there are so many different reasons why someone like Rishi Sunak, who was, who was supposed to be the economics guy, you know, the guy who cares about, about the economic well-being of the country, who isn't concerned with these kind of culture issues. It's actually not surprising that that very candidate would also be deeply invested in the culture wars, if not by directly talking about it himself all the time, by but by selecting people around him that he knows will kind of do that work for him. And the reason is because the economic agenda and the overall state agenda of this government needs that culture wars sort of um, stuff to do its work, not only as a distraction from the various ways in which they are you know, crippling our social services, destroying our economy, make essentially everything that people love about this country, they are just gutting it. So it's obviously there's a distraction. There's a distraction element with the culture wars. But also the culture wars offer a really important cover for an agenda that is about turning the state, basically taking anything that the state does that is about caring for people, or making sure that people have a safety net if they you know, lose their job or if they develop a chronic illness or if they have a disability, taking away any kind of part of the state that is about taking responsibility for the well-being of its citizens and only keeping the parts of the state that do violence. And that's ultimately what a lot of this culture war has been about. It's been about fortifying the punitive parts of the state whilst offering cover for making sure that the more kind of, let's say, welfare-based parts of the state, that, you know, if we're talking about the kind of post-war consensus of what a capitalist democratic state looks like, pulling back on all those welfare-based things and going forward and fortifying the, the bits that are about violence, that are about curbing, you know, civil rights, that are about policing people. And that is ultimately what the culture wars offers cover to do. And that's the ideology of a neoliberal state. And it's the ideology of the state that these conservatives are deeply invested in. So it's very intertwined with the kind of economics that a Rishi Sunak is actually trying to implement in this country. It requires that kind of culture war cover for so many different reasons. Let's move on to our next story. This week marked the 60th anniversary of Martin Luther King's historic speech at the March on Washington, more commonly known as the I Have a Dream speech. So let's see how the French Ministry of Education decided to pay tribute. Men, tall, small, fat or slim, Christian, Muslim. I have a dream that communication will allow humans to better pay attention. I have a dream that tomorrow I, the underdog, graduate the class of We Did It and forget about the world and the name they once called me. Even if this world looks ideal and it looks as if it's just a dream, if everybody does something, we will make it. I have a dream that the time for empty promises comes to an end. Stop the blah, blah, blah. There is no planet B. The Earth is our greatest treasure. Thank you. Hmm. Is anything missing from this homage to one of the greatest and most impassioned speeches against racism in human history? Anything at all? 
That's right. There's absolutely zero mention of racism. And for those listening on the Navarra Live podcast, you won't have seen that every single kid in the video is white. I have a dream indeed. The children are apparently the winners of a speaking competition called The More I Say, and were invited to share their own short speeches inspired by Martin Luther King. Now, what ended up being put out isn't the fault of those kids at all. They've been asked to talk about how I Have a Dream relates to the values they hold most dear. So it's unsurprising that by picking an entirely white cast of children, what you're going to end up with is racism sliding down the list of urgent social ills. The clip that we showed you isn't the whole of the original video. After online outcry about the lack of children of colour featured in the video, the French Ministry of Education took it down. Dahlia, the French state has often boasted of its commitment to colour blindness, so what are we going to get next? Is it a heterosexual version of Angels in America? Maybe it's men doing a dramatic reading of Mary Wollstonecraft's vindication on the rights of women? Like, where are we going to go next? I mean, the French are notoriously delusional when it comes to questions of racism in French society. And look, any all countries that have a recent history or indeed current existence of colonialism or settler colonialism necessarily have delusion about both their past and the ways in which that past shapes the present. You know, in a sense, in order to continue going, you kind of have to deny, be in extreme denial about, particularly if you're, you know, when you're talking about maintaining the existing power structures, you kind of have to be in complete denial about the dispossession and violence and inequality, much of which is racialized, obviously not all of it, um, that underpins that privilege and that power, you kind of have to be in denial in order for it to continue going. So, you know, Britain's in denial about it, the US, Australia, but there's a particular French brand of denial and it's connected to this idea of laicite, which is, you know, often talked about in terms of its secularism policy, you know, this idea of French, the French state being secular, but it also more broadly bleeds into this idea that the state can be a non-ideological entity. And the logic there is that race or racism is a man-made ideology, which sure, racial difference does not have biological or inherent, it's not biological or inherent, it is man-made, it is structural, um, or it's a social construct. But the French, the sort of the French state goes from that observation, which is fair enough, and says, well, obviously, if race is just completely discursive, then the way we deal with it is by just not ever talking about it at all. And if you even acknowledge the existence of racism, you are perpetuating racism, which of course makes absolutely no sense. And the thing that I've always found so funny about this, I mean, it's devastating, but also funny, is that the French have no right, they have no reason to be this delusional about structural racism, because some of the most incredible texts that deal with colonialism, racism, and how it shapes the modern world were written in French. Like Fanon, Césaire, Mbembe, like all of these incredible texts that we all rely on that have shaped an anti-racist consciousness around the world were originally written in French, and yet it seemed the actual French state have never actually bothered to read them. So it's all, that's always confused me, that kind of disjunction. But 
that is how they that's kind of the brand of their form of colonialism and it's how it's kind of continued in modern French society. I mean, I think you're so right to point out the different brands of colonialism because British colonialism, when it was in Africa, the Caribbean or in Asia, the idea wasn't that the colonized become British. Sure, you Mm. might become more civilized by virtue of the extension of our wonderful language and tongue, but you're never going to become British. Whereas the energizing myth of French colonialism was you will become French. You are now French. You are now going to be civilized and you'll become French citizens. Now, the idea that if you were an African colonized person or a Caribbean colonized person, that you would be an equal with a white French citizen was obviously a load of horse shit. This is something which Franz Fanon writes about so well in Black Skins, White Masks. That was the myth. It was the myth of universalism. And that's still in some ways encoded through the DNA of the French state. So one example would be you have had huge protests erupt this year because of racialized policing. You've got people who are either African and North Amer- or North African immigrants or the descendants of African and North African immigrants saying that, look, we are treated really unfairly by police. We are singled out for stop and search. We're treated worse. We're denied our rights consistently. And look, it's resulted in this terrible act of violence of a young man being killed during a stop and search when he's in his car. And this is something which comes up in a kind of cyclical way about French police violence. There was very widespread writing in the early 2000s. Um, You had the case of Adama Traore, who was really um, violently um, uh, assaulted by police. You also had a, a young man called Theo, I believe. There's something which comes up again and again. But unlike other European countries, and I would say even though you do have these horse shit reports coming out from the UK government denying the existence of institutional racism, we do at least try and measure things, right? We do at least try and measure rates of stop and search. We do at least try and measure rates of arrest. We do try and at least measure sentencing and different outcomes according to different ethnic groups. The French state doesn't measure these things. It says, we're not going to, we're not going to measure, we're not going to keep track of the ethnicity of those who are stopped in search because that would be treating our French citizens differently. And that would be the real racism. So you have this kind of racism acrobatics where to try and get the infrastructure in place so you can at least understand what role racism is playing in your country, you say, oh, that's racist. So you end up in this totally bizarre, I think, topsy-turvy situation where to acknowledge that, look, what Martin Luther King's speech was, it was about race and it was about racism specifically. And I'm sure we can we can talk about those utopian ideals and apply them in, in other ways too, but fundamentally this is about race. To do that, they're like, no, 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 that'd be terribly racist. To observe that it's kind of weird to celebrate the I Have a Dream speech without any black children, that's itself racist. Let's move on to our next story. Jordan Peterson has said some pretty wacky things in the past, but on Twitter, he's really outdone himself. The story begins with this response by MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan to the murder of three black people by a white supremacist in Florida. Well, tonight, this brown Muslim is asking the white conservative community to do the same. Get your house in order. 
Crack down on the hate preachers who you've empowered and on their foot soldiers who you've emboldened. Condemn the rise of white supremacist ideology, of white supremacist terrorism, and denounce the daily racist outbursts on your cable news channels and your talk radio networks. That's a very powerful point about how white communities aren't held to account for the actions of their members in the same way that minority communities are held collectively responsible. But this was how Peterson responded to it. You're not really brown, more like a light tan, just like white people. Plus, you're a Caucasian, by definition, buddy. And like the rest of us, Hassan was pretty mystified by that comment, following it up with this. Nothing to see here, just Jordan Peterson, a white man telling me I'm not brown, I'm actually white. Also, how am I a Caucasian by definition? Peterson's answer to that question was with another poem. He said this, you're not black and you're not Asian. What's left? Caucasian. It's not that difficult. And I didn't call you white. Not that I care. I pointed out that your true color is tan, which it is more or less like mine. And your idiot, a white man comment, implying I have no right to notice whatever the hell your color is, is not the least bit intimidating or damning as far as I'm concerned. It's, I mean, people listening on the podcast won't be able to see. There's so many weird line breaks in this. So this kind of strange racial invective, it is structured the same way as that poem about I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox poem. Um, it's kind of entertaining in its own way. Anyway, that answer actually kind of cleared things up because what Peterson is doing is resurrecting long debunked biological race science of the kind that is still loved today by white supremacists. That's right, exactly the kind of white supremacists Hassan was talking about. If Peterson were living in the 18th or the 19th centuries, he would have been considered, considered right. According to the race categorizations used by white supremacists in those days, Indian people were classified as Caucasian. Back then, Caucasian was scientifically thought to be the superior of the three biological human races, the others being black people and the people of East Asia and the Pacific. So Peterson's bizarre comments look less like a simple anachronism and instead more like a troubling throwback to the era of skull calipers and pseudo-scientific racism. There's also the bit about Mehdi Hassan not really being brown and instead more of a light tan. And what Jordan Peterson's doing here is a move that I like to call racist bamboozlement. How this works is that in order to destabilize your opponent, if they're talking about racial injustice, is that you simply deny that race plays any role in how they're perceived at all. How can you be a credible voice on racism when you're merely tan? It's such a denial of social reality, such a flagrant dismissal of how race shapes someone's experience that your opponent will be totally thrown off. They'll be staggering, swaying, and unable to form a comeback. And then he, there you have it. Boom. Racist bamboozlement. Um, Dahlia, before we move on, do you think that Jordan Peterson really believes the stuff he's saying? That he can look at Mehdi Hassan and goes, yeah, you're Caucasian, just like me. I think what this is, is that despite Jordan Peterson being someone who is 
in some context taken seriously as someone who should talk about things like race and identity. He actually doesn't even have like a sociology 101 undergraduate module understanding of what race is. Like he actually does believe that it is a biological reality. He actually believes that they are it, that racial categories are inherent categories that they're reducible to skin color and that they're not socially constructed categories that people are moved into and out of by representational strategies. Now, that is something that like A-level students can understand. So I don't understand why, you know, a so-called public intellectual who is given liberty to spill so much ink on this topic as if he's some kind of authority on it when he doesn't even have the basic theory in hand. Now, obviously, I'm sure he would argue that any theory that seeks to understand race as a social construct is, you know, just woke blob nonsense. I'm sure that he he would be thrilled to hear that he doesn't have a sociology 101 understanding of what race is. But forget about him. I think more broadly, we suffer from this as a society. Uh, we saw it in the last story, in the story about, you know, the denial of institutional racism by the government. We saw it in the story about uh, French approaches and French ideologies French state, French state ideology to the question of racial difference, we still don't, even though we talk about it all the time, we still can't grapple with the idea that race is not itself a scientific or biological fact, but that doesn't mean that the effects of it are not very real and very concrete and measurable. Uh, and that, to me, is what I find so frustrating look Jordan Peterson can have whatever opinions he wants to have whatever what, what what frustrates me is that he then gets put into the room with people whose life's work is to study this concept in a serious historical and rigorous way and they're put like as an equal interlocutor with someone who can't grasp the fundamental basics that how you are racialized is historically and spatially specific, that these aren't inherent categories, that they are categories that are used to mark people in ways that are convenient for a broader political economic order and are movable and changeable and, you know, aren't essential categories. So that to me is what I really learned. And I already knew it, but that's what I really was reaffirmed by, what, reaff what this kind of particular bizarre outburst from Jordan Peterson really reaffirmed for me. And it's actually much bigger than Jordan Peterson. It's actually a very broad issue, I think, that this literacy on what, what racism is, is still so lacking, despite the amount of time we spend talking and writing about race. If you're interested in hearing a total debunking of scientific racism or the biological basis of race, I interviewed uh, Dr. Adam Rutherford. He's a geneticist who wrote a book called How to Argue with a Racist. And we talked about the clustering of particular characteristics according to geography, and also how an Australian study accidentally found out which university department has the most sex. So check that out. Jordan Peterson's online shenanigans, however, have drawn the attention of his professional body, and the College of Psychologists of Ontario, Peterson's home province in Canada, have had enough. Last November, the college decided that Peterson would have to complete a, quote, continuing education or remedial program or face losing his license to practice psychology. That came after it received dozens of complaints about Peterson's online conduct. 
Peterson then took the college to court to overturn its ruling. But just last week, he lost his case, with the court upholding the college's decision. On his podcast, Peterson vowed it wouldn't be the end of the matter and that he'd be making the whole matter public. So, and I've, you know, we've cordoned off our life. I can deal with this without it having interfere with everything else I'm doing. I've talked to Tammy. I've talked to you and Julian. My family's on my side. We're solidly committed to this. I have a good legal team. We have the money necessary to do this and we have the connections. So if the college wants to re-educate me, they're more than welcome to try. But if they think they're gonna do it in secret, they've got another thing coming. Well, what's that? <laughs> it was nice talking to you. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realize you'd ended that clip with, well, dad, it was nice talking to you. Like obviously his daughter Michaela is also kind of, um, you know, a bit of a conspiracy minded um, crank herself, but that was really funny. Um, also, if you close your eyes, if you close your eyes and you listen to Jordan Peters and you go, that's a very angry Kermit the Frog. Um, what could the College of Psychologists have done to anger Kermit the Frog so? Um, Dahlia, tell me, visualize, if you will, the feeling you would have if you walked into a doctor's office at a time of crisis and your psychologist was Jordan Peterson. I mean, I think it would give me good perspective because I think I'd be like, whatever crisis I'm going through, clearly my crisis is not as acute as what's ever going on here. I've like, never been in a beef coma. I've never <laughs> eaten myself into a beef coma. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I just think that Jordan Peterson is like an uncool, an uncool person's idea of a cool person and a not smart person's idea of a smart person. Like, I just don't understand how anyone looks at this person as like, oh my God, you know. I have to tell, this man has to tell me how to live my life because clearly he's doing such an amazing job. But anyway, um, I do think this is interesting. I mean, first of all, I'm sure that when he got the news that his university was going to send him on a re-education course, he probably jumped for joy because I can't think of anything more brilliant for him as a branding exercise for him than, you know, to say, oh, my university is trying to re-indoctrinate me because... I have the balls to say that race is a biological fact and that Mehdi Hassan is light tan, not brown. Like this is their bread and butter. Like they love to be quote unquote canceled because that then becomes a springboard for, you know, gaining a great bigger following, for getting all sorts of brand deals or book deals or whatever. Like there's no quicker way to a good book deal than to be quote unquote canceled. So I'm sure he's thrilled. But I do think, you know, look, psychology is a very specific kind, you know, it's a very particular kind of academic work because you're not just talking about someone writing books and writing articles and stuff. You are talking about a clinical setting and people who do clinical work have a particular code of conduct that they have to abide by. And you can disagree with that. But I do think overall, it's pretty healthy and pretty good for if you are engaged in clinical work in healthcare settings, that there has to be kind of decorum or particular, you know, remits through which you can behave publicly. 
Um, having said that, I can't imagine anyone who would be, you know, particularly opposed to Jordan Peterson's public profile would go and see him as a therapist. I think that would be kind of wild. But I do think it's an interesting point to say that, you know, this isn't quite the same as general academic freedom of speech. This is actually a kind of clinical issue that is governed by a different set of principles and kind of kind of has to be um, when it as opposed to, you know, academic freedom where we're just talking about people publishing books and, you know, articles. No, we're dealing with patients here. So it's kind of a different kettle of fish. There's a really interesting piece about this by Amias Srinivasan in the LRB, which basically makes the argument that academia is not meant to treat all ideas equally. In fact, academia is supposed to be a process of sorting through good ideas and bad ideas. So this idea that you're being cancelled if your ideas are being found to be flawed or lacking or poorly evidenced or, you know, logically unsound that's not your academic freedom of speech being suppressed. You're being subjected to an academic process and you're being found wanting. I mean, to give another kind of example, my job is to chat shit for a living, right? So you can't really punish me for chatting shit. That's my job. Whereas the job of a psychologist is somewhat different. There are professional standards there. There aren't at Navarra Media. Um, I am joking in case Guido Fawkes is going to clip that. Um, thank you, Dahlia, for joining me tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. I had a great time today. It was really, I love co-hosting with you, Ash. I also do love Michael, but I do have a special thing for you, Ash. I love being the favourite child. Um, and thanks everyone for watching this evening. The show will be back tomorrow from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.